Hey everybody, welcome to Animates. I'm Paige. And I'm Chris. And today we are getting started on Steven Universe. We are plowing right through this last third of our so-called Renaissance Trinity. Though, of course, there is a reminder that there are many other shows that could probably fit this distinction of being art. <laughs> if not just really, really good shows that exist in the modern era. So while the top three are sort of our focus, there are going to be other shows that we consider sort of in the same vein. Yes, definitely. Um, Steven Universe definitely fits into this category. In many ways, it sort of um, defines the it it is the it is the rule it is the renaissance cartoon par excellence if we're we're thinking about what makes something a renaissance cartoon it's um it, it has a yes it typifies it has a highly unique and recognizable art style it has an overarching plot line characters are able to grow and change unique. there are unique um, and high quality music production yeah um there there are um deep uh like sophisticated emotional uh themes as well as sophisticated just regular plot um there is a an auteur element to it that we were talking about with adventure time where you know it's created by rebecca sugar and her personality and her involvement are really important to the show um, and it is also progressive and groundbreaking in its content. So it's, it's it's just fun. Like, I feel yeah, like all time. of these, like, I, I, there's a tendency and I, I feel like when things become so auteur oriented, sometimes there's this thing that happens where um, products of that, when people try to follow it up, they, they try to emulate that to such a degree that they end up losing what a what their medium is along the way. So, like, these are still cartoons designed for younger people. And I feel like you could very easily try to mimic these things, but lose that sense of fun and, like, also just being funny that these things sort of have as their reason for existing. And it... That really hasn't happened yet, I guess, but it could. Yeah, I don't yet see that. Uh, um, I haven't really yet seen an example of a show that is basically claims to be a children's cartoon, but is trying so hard to be groundbreaking or whatever that it's just not very much fun. <laughs> you know, that's not something I haven't I've seen yet, but I can definitely, you know think that that might be something that could happen <laughs> which is good you know it, i maybe uh that that just won't happen but steven universe is the metric by which all others seem to be judged and cartoon network seems to be highly aware of that fact yes definitely um so in the most basic you know uh b basic stats Steven Universe is a children's cartoon that aired on Cartoon Network 
from 2013 to 2019. Uh, there were five seasons. There was a movie. And then there was a follow-up limited series called Steven Universe Future, which was actually on in 2020. Um, so you could argue that there are six seasons. Um, and it was created by Rebecca Sugar, who was previously a storyboard revisionist and storyboard uh, for uh, Adventure Time. And the conception and development of this show is Highly so documented. well documented. <laughs> it's incredibly documented. And we were discussing like, well, why is that? Because when we first started doing our show, you know, we were we started with Rugrats and there's nothing. It's just like, oh, yeah. So there were some people, a couple of them were married and they conceived this show, <laughs> you know, and then they made it, you know, and there's just not really that much detail about it. Or occasionally it'll say oh, the creator of Doug said that he wanted each episode to have a moral, you know? So maybe there's like a trade publication or two that's interviewing these guys, but mostly like nobody cares about the creator of Doug or what he thinks about or what he does. Like nobody cares. But we talked recently about how in this Renaissance period, this idea of the auteur, you know, that, that the creator of an animated series is is an artist, uh, an artist who conceives of and controls this product in a similar way to someone like a Wes Anderson. Yeah, and so, their motivations and ideas are important. Becomes something that's part of children's animation. Yeah, and and I mean the names of people in this period are pretty well known to me by now. Like J.G. Quintel, Pendleton mm -hmm. Ward, Rebecca Sugar, Alex Hirsch. They're up Van Orman, you know? These are all names of people that I feel like it's important to identify. They have a unique style, a unique focus, a, a, a unique aesthetic. Like, J.G. Quintel, tell me three things about him right now. Let's see. J.G. Quintel enjoys the use of slacker and stoner humor. He tends to have... Lankily, lankily drawn characters and favors a long nose in his animation style and he typically voice acts using a naturalized style in his own product boom right another one he loves the 80s and the early 90s uh, loves 80s music <laughs> right so uh, rebecca sugar is like this and and you you can kind of see it in the the stuff she works on in Adventure Time a little bit, but really, like Steven Universe has very clearly defined aesthetic and writing qualities that were probably so sparkly. Gonna <laughs> um, vaporwave, soft like soft vaporwave is anime, An <laughs> anime, pastel, queer, and that's a big one. Right? We're the gayest talk, show ever made. <laughs> we're gonna talk like that. That like you can't. I, as as oh man, as queer people ourselves, we recognize mm -hmm. that we seek. We like I I have played the representation bingo game where I like try to lift things out of shows that very clearly did not have that in mind. And yes. with this show, you would have to try to not do that. There's so, no heavy lifting with this show. This show is legitimately the gayest show ever made besides the L word. 
Um, and it also is legitimately the most diverse children's cartoon ever made in the United States. That I yeah, I feel like that should be stated up front is like just expected to be very gay. <laughs> yeah, if you if that bothers you, leave. Cause I I guess a oh god, I guess you could read the only way that you could not see it that way is if you read everything as devoid of sexuality or intimacy. Which would be very hard because some of the language used by people or the body language used by people during certain key parts goes directly against that reading. So it, yeah, it's it's kind of a similar thing with like w- like even more so with the LGBTQ representation, but it's a similar thing with racial representation in that you can say, well, okay, let's like try to say somehow that Garnet is not supposed to be red as black. Oh my god. That will act actually she's just a gem person and she's red she's not black well it's like but yeah like her voice actresses and so is amethyst and pearl and peridot and lapis are voiced by asian women you know so it's like even if you refuse to like read any of these gems as anything like a human racial group like they still have the most diverse voice acting cast of any cartoon that's ever been made in the united states a point that Paige raised to me that I think is key here is uh, the concept of authorial intent. And this is something that, I mean, whenever you talk about a book or a movie, right, there there are different positions on authorial intent. Does it matter? How much does it matter? This has become a common conversation because of people like J.K. Rowling, I feel like. And, and like, the whole making people, like, should the author's intent matter in how we consume and understand a product? And people take, you know, authors dead, right? Their intent, once it's a public piece of art, an, auth- an author's intent no longer matters. How it's read is completely up to the audience. And you could take the position that it really matters. I this th- doctrine is usually referred to as death of the author. Yeah, death of the author. Sorry. Um, no problem. With this show, uh, Rebecca Sugar is still alive. Literally. <laughs> uh, she is very... She's like barely older than Chris. <laughs> she is, she is a, a public figure. She is not afraid to give interviews and talk about her work. She's not afraid of giving readings of her own work and saying what her intent was. So in this sense... And partially because of the contributions that she makes to diversity and and queer representation, I am generally going to take the position that her intent is a very important variable to consider in how we read the show. Say that more so really than any show that we've talked about before, her intent is very obvious. Like, it is not subtle in any way and that's part of why too it would be hard to read it other ways knowing and seeing how it's done you would have to be really really determined to like not read the show as very gay you know (laughs) like you would have to be determined to be like there are no lesbians in this program yeah i think with I think that there are cases where you can give alternative readings that aren't mutually exclusive. 
So for example, there's, I'm not going to talk about it now, but there's like a big central conflict resolved at the very end of the series that can be read a couple different ways, but it definitely has like a main reading and reading it other ways doesn't exclude that. They're merely like, it's kind of like a yes and situation to me. Like there's a main way to read it, but there are also some other ways that you could analyze it as well. And they all kind of, you know, they're they're all valid, but there is one best way. Dude, like actually thinking about like how determined you'd have to be to like read this stuff as not gay. I literally just saw a screenshot the other day saying something like, oh, the Steven Universe fandom, like just like absolutely ref- like like tries to come up with anything that like you know the gems genitals could possibly be ignoring that they would like have to be female because like they would like like anything to read it as like you know not lesbian or whatever like and like i was just like what are you talking like like who cares about the gems genitals a nobody asked why are we discussing this b they're rock people who are made and do not procreate sexually so i would actually assume they have no genitals and See, they're all clearly drawn to be perceived as female and use female pronouns. So it's gay. Go away. <laughs> like, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, we, we are just going to sidestep all of that and say that they're wrong and move on. Yeah. Uh, the, okay. So a little bit of how the show came to be, right? Rebecca Sugar's chugging away, working on Adventure Time and... Cartoon Network approaches her for ideas. Basically saying we would like to hear some ideas about new shows. But other than that, it is important to note that she develops her ideas independently. She is the creator of the show and is an independent female creator of the show, which is very important because that's not very common or happens at all on certain networks like we aren't sure if Nickelodeon has ever had a animated, female, independently run show. Yeah, it, it's. I would say that female showrunners are in com- are uncommon in the United States. Period. Female showrunners are even less common in children's programming, and even less common in children's animation um they're also less common in animation period too so it's um it's rare rebecca sugar was the first ever female showrunner for cartoon network so she's working on adventure time and developing ideas and and working on i i do not think that it started as steven universe it started as another uh young protagonist helping teenagers with like emotional problems which yes. the show is a lot of that so clearly yeah. those ideas were were kept but uh she was developing the show and was then tasked after approval to start creating some episodes while she was still storyboarding for adventure time and eventually it got to the point where she had to leave because trying to do both at once was clearly too much and was affecting work on the new show when that at that point she was working on gems and gem history and she even created a timeline of 
the history of the show. See, and this is how I fucking know that she's an anime fan. She like cares about all of the 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 timeline backstory stuff. The lore. The lore <laughs> is really, really, really important. And so eventually they created what, six episodes for proof of concept. And you can really tell, by the way, like this is not a bad thing, but you can really tell at the beginning that you're sort of working with pilot material. It, you know, animation is okay, but certainly the animation rough. is noticeably rough in the first six to ten episodes. Like the aesthetic, the the backgrounds are all really good. Like the aesthetic, uh, round pastel vaporwave purple mm -hmm. <laughs> all that stuff is there and looks really cool and already sort of makes a distinct statement about what it will be but all the anim like the actual animating is very rough the actual animating is rough and the character models are inconsistent like steven's face is inconsistent so I feel like this is important because if you go to watch it and you're like, I don't understand what the fuss is about. I personally noticed that at the 10 episode mark, all artifacts like that are mostly gone. I mean, there there is a common joke that runs through the community that Steven changes size like all the time. Like sometimes he's short, sometimes he's taller, sometimes he's rounder. Uh, at the very, towards the end of the series, he's like, he starts bigger than Peridot and becomes smaller than Peridot. You don't know who that is yet if you haven't seen the show. But, <laughs> so inconsistent character models is sort of a criticism levied periodically, but it becomes less noticeable, I think, after mm -hmm. the 10 episode mark. That's like when it has a good stride... And looks good. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So don't don't judge it too harshly, because some of that stuff was produced when Sugar was working on two shows. So it, you would you would be rushed too, man. <laughs> yeah. Also, something that I'd like to note that this show does, which is really like, is not something that you ever see, is that it credits the Korean animation directors on the title cards. Um, so the vast majority of animated programs outsource the actual animation to studios in Korea. This is going back to the 90s, like King of the Hill was animated in Korea. And most of those people are like, if they're credited, credited super fast at the end of the show and often just credited as like a studio. But in this show, on the title card of every episode, above the written by and directed credits, the animation directors from the Korean studio are credited. And yeah we could do a whole epi maybe mm, we could do a whole episode talking about the process of how some of these things are made and noting that like animation is often undercompensated and approaches like rough labor practices depending on like 
who and when is doing it. <laughs> yeah, that's something that would require like pro- probably more like research on our part, honestly, than most things that we normally do. If that's something you'd be interested in us doing, maybe let us know and we could consider doing something like that as a bonus episode on the Patreon. Heck yeah, snaps. So um, it was obviously picked up, right? They approved of it and it went into main production and and the rest is really history. But I feel like we should do our due diligence here and present sort of main names of people who worked on the show and introduce our main characters because they're... There's a pretty big cast in the sense that the members of the town make frequent appearances on the show. So there's a main cadre, cadre, and then people in the town around the main characters, like, make frequent appearances. So there are a lot of people to talk about, but I think for now we can just talk about the main people and then, you know, start there. Yeah, definitely. Um, I will say I don't know as much about the writers and animators who worked on this show, mostly because they're really young and they haven't like yet had the opportunity to go on and do a lot of their own stuff yet. Um, But it is, I think, worth noting that the writer's room and the animators involved were was also... um, really diverse you know the um supervising director of the show is ian jones cordy who is a young black man um a lot of women were in in the writer's room on that uh program as well El machalka um you know rebecca sugar herself um and then just like uh then a, a variety of names that sound vaguely familiar you know if you um are a fan of animation like Danny Hines um so a lot of up and coming people were working on this show it was a very youthful and diverse uh production that also involved apparently Rebecca Sugar's little brother Stephen <laughs> upon whom Stephen himself Stephen Universe is apparently based yeah, it kind of feels like so far Starting with Flapjack, we've sort of traced the trajectory of a variety of people who were brought into Cartoon Network shows, and we've seen how they've kind of continued hopping properties. But this kind of seems like a situation where we've taken one of those people and they've kind of started their own trajectory for a bunch of other people, possibly down the line. So we've got sort of like this lineage thing splitting off now. Yeah, it's sort of like like we've got Gen 1 with Thurip Van Orman and then Gen 2 with uh, Pat McHale, Alex Hirsch, J.G. Quintel, Pendleton Ward. And then we've got Gen 3 with Rebecca Sugar and Natasha Allegri. And we've yet to see, you know, not even all of Gen 3 has appeared yet, right? So they, these were very early appearances. So we haven't even gotten to see what, what Gen 4 is going to do yet, right? I also think that we might be in an economic situation that doesn't encourage the same level of risk-taking from um, studios that allowed all of these animators to uh, make these projects at such a young age. Yeah, COVID, man. What else is it going to fuck up? 
Yeah, I mean, like, but I think even before COVID, because like the thing is, like, in the early part of the of the teens of the 2010s, like all these people were really young and they were being allowed to like make entire shows with very little oversight. Like there was a lot of risk taking. And I think that there was just like, there were a lot of incentives to do that that I don't think exist anymore. So I think that we might see a bit of a slowdown on like 25 year olds getting to run an entire show (laughs) for a while. But I mean, it clearly paid dividends like that allowed the creation of some of the most well-known Western children's animated shows to ever exist. That's true. Yeah. So maybe, I don't know. It will, we'll have to see, won't we? <laughs> I also, I also just think the transition to streaming is affecting the degree to which like it's a lot of times major changes rather than incentivizing risk as you think they would, you know, because you need to take risks to compete. Um, instead, um, disincentivizes risk and i think that's what's happening with um like network-based television studios is that they are instead of taking risks to keep up with streaming they are not taking any risks at all yeah i i personally have also noted certain streaming giants (coughs) netflix (coughs) like to start shows and then cancel them after a season and it's becoming a thing (laughs) and Mm -hmm. and that doesn't bode particularly well for the development of longer running risky shows like Steven Universe. It's really frustrating actually because sort of originally the thing with Netflix was like Netflix doesn't cancel anything and now it's sort of like with Netflix you get two seasons and then no more no matter how good it is and how much people like it. Like as a fan of Sense8 I felt the sting of uh um, of, of Netflix's cruel, you know, cancellation acts. Yeah, they basically have have switched to like a cutthroat cost cutting strategy based around, I guess, entirely an algorithm that says new shows bring streamers, but continuing shows don't. So yeah, and shows that have an expensive production don't get to continue even if they're really liked and guess what's really really expensive animation yeah so i i mean personally i hope that that fucks them up so much that they stop because people know now like nobody is in the dark that because everybody has had a show they liked canceled like way before it's time so I'm hoping that that sensate shouldn't have been canceled. <laughs> I'm hoping that that doesn't continue. Yeah. Uh, because they lose subscribers. Yes, exactly. Anyway, so um, yeah. So okay, so I would like to give a shout out to the musical production throughout the whole show, which Rebecca Sugar does a does a variety of the music in the show, which is nice. She does a lot. She actually sings, in in some some stuff. But she is a musically inclined individual, and there are a variety of songs that are her songs that she wrote for the show. But a lot of the music is also done by uh, a duo, uh, hus- I-, I think a husband-wife pair, uh, mm. named Ivy and Susaru. Susaru, uh, blah, 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 blah. I never pronounce it right. But they do very chiptune, vaporwave-mixed style music. Mm-hmm. And I actually 
heard some of their music before they worked on Steven Universe, but oh. it's very distinct and very, um, like a perfect fit for the show. It's yeah. It's also music is really important to the show, not just because of the sort of like vaporwave bit music aesthetic of the of the general score, but because the characters sing a lot it's like kind of like a low-key musical yeah and and they're all pretty good like there's almost there's a song almost every episode uh, say there was a song like every three or four episodes is what i'd say okay that's fair i'm probably yeah i probably but if you look at their s their their uh ost there are a ton of songs in there like so more, many songs more than you remember more than i remembered and a lot of them are plot related um almost all of them are actually plot related and i believe i'm not positive but i believe the first one is uh from season one episode 13 uh everyone's favorite all i want to do is see you turn into a giant woman a giant woman <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so music... That the, one will get stuck in your head. <laughs> the music is very good. Very important to the show. Mm -hmm. uh, all right, so additionally, the show is arranged into what the, the familiar 11-minute episodes. And while many of them can be watched out of order, they are generally meant to be consumed in, a, in an order. From yes. start to finish. It becomes like many of the other programs that we've watched from this uh, time period. The serialization becomes more important the closer to the end of the series you get. Yeah, I would say by, I don't know, even by the middle of season two. Mm -hmm. it, it generally is much better consumed in order. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Because I would say that aspect of people are allowed to change and grow and that growth can become permanent, that aspect of a Renaissance program is extremely important to Steven Universe. Yeah, characters at the end don't really resemble who they... Like, I mean, they do in the sense that people are still themselves to some degree mm -hmm. but by the end of the show they they're very different and that could be very jarring to watch out of order yeah it's like let's say you watch like if you were to watch an episode from season one like one that heavily if you were to watch like lars and the cool kids and then any episode of steven universe future you'd be like i don't understand how this is the same person like this does this doesn't make any sense, you know. Let's see here. So the entire show is uh quite an ambitious project if you're gonna try to binge it. Cause it is 160 episodes long, plus movie, plus future. So I we we're going to be breaking this up like we did with Adventure Time into seasons. So today we're going to focus on season one, which is the longest season at 49 episodes. It's actually 52. 
I might have missed some then. Yeah, it's 52 episodes. Uh, what episodes didn't I see? Yeah, also, you're going to have issues when trying to watch this show because, like, if you, this is just a warning to the audience, for some reason on Hulu, you cannot watch season five of Steven Universe, even though Steven Universe Future is available on Hulu. And then also if you try and go somewhere else online to try and watch it because some of it isn't available on Hulu, then like often episodes are cut out of it for seemingly no reason. And it's hard to determine because the seasons can be so long what is missing. Yikes. Yikerinos, guys. Yeah, so just like you have to like pay a lot of attention to... To, to things when you're trying to watch Steven Universe. It's very irritating. <laughs> All right. So Steven Universe is about a kid whose name is Steven Universe. That's it. That's the show. Goodbye. <laughs> no, I mean, you think it's like a superhero name or something, but no, this kid's last That's name, just is, this name is actually <laughs> Universe. <laughs> we eventually learned that, of course, like, his dad legally changed his name to Universe um, when he was trying to make it as a very 80s-ish musical artist in what, based on the timeline, has to have been the late 90s. <laughs> um, that their their family name is actually DeMeo, but legally, Steven's last name is, in fact, Universe. Which, by the way, one of the animation director for the show's name is Nick DeMeo. Yeah, so that's a fun one. So Steven is a young child who is, well, not young. Like, he is, gosh, how old is he at the start? 13 years old. He's 13. And that's something that I want to discuss is because he seems much, much younger than 13. Well, and part of, like, I have some explanations for that. Number one, he doesn't go to school. That number, was going to be my explanation, too. <laughs> number two, he doesn't know that many people outside of, like, his own age group. Um, but anyway, so Stephen is beset by three maternal surrogate figures who are aliens from another world. <laughs> Which you don't learn until quite some way. Way, you know they're not people, but you don't know what they are until like quite some ways into season one. Yeah, so they're they're called gems. That's like their species. And they are light-based creatures. Like, they're magical, but also hyper-scientific to the point where you're like, is this magic or science? It's both at that point. And yeah, they, they are, as Ronaldo put it once, polymorphic sentient rocks. Yeah, so basically, like, they have a body, which is a crystal, and they, they have the ability to create a body out of light, but also that has mass. It, it, 
It's sort of like it's like um in the episode So Many Birthdays, like Steven sings some kind of song that's like, you deserve to have a birthday, even if your age isn't real and your body's an illusion. <laughs> and so, that's yeah, that's the that's what it is. Yeah, so so the the three gems, we we their names are their gem distinction. So there's Pearl, who is a pearl. Amethyst who is not a gem or a rock of any kind. It's an organic material. Oh my gosh. Well, but it's a it's a crystallized mineral and thus is still a crystal, right? That's the thing that's always like bothered me about the show, actually, is that a pearl is like it is a um it is created inside of an oyster. It is made of like organic materials that the oyster produces to protect itself from irritation. But then I also kind of wonder about that in the context of a Pearl's social position in uh, gem society. So I don't know. Thoughts. Yeah. So, um, and then Garnet. And these three have very distinct personalities and they are the like central characters of the show along with Steven. But they seem to be vaguely defined at the beginning as protecting the planet from monsters that run around occasionally, and we're not really sure why they run around. But they also take care of Steven. And we learn that Steven is also a gem, but he's also a human. So at the beginning, you're like, he's kind of a weird hybrid between a human and a gem. And we learn very early that his mother was a gem, like a pure gem who gave up her form to create him with a human. So it's already the metaphysics of the situation are very complicated. Yeah, like uh, it's it's one of those like in terms of how Steven physically came to be. It's one of those like you can't think about it too hard. It gets too confusing because they literally show Rose like pregnant at one point. It's like how any of this? Um. Along with Stephen, uh, obviously his mother, Rose Quartz, is gone. She gave up herself to become Stephen. And Greg is his father, his completely normal human father. And I think the other main character that's important to mention in, in the main group is Connie. Yes. So definitely. Connie, Connie is a. She doesn't live in Beach City, which is the place where they all live in a giant temple. But Connie visits Beach City and she comes to develop a very strong friendship with Steven and sort of becomes like an unofficial member of the Crystal Gems, which is the group they call themselves. It's like they're like the Sailor Scouts for for Crystal Gems. And by the way... This is a very reminiscent of a magical girl story setup. It it is it is almost like impossible for me to not see that. Like Steven is new to his powers, he's learning how to use them. The gems can transform. They get a normal outsider that is the opposite sex of all the members except Steven kind of mixes that up I guess a little bit. But, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of like Sailor Moon. 
<laughs> yeah, it's Sailor Moon-esque. Yeah, it's like they're magical girls who don't need to transform because they're always in magical form. Kind of, you know? I'll, I'll talk more about Rebecca Sugar's love of anime later. What a weeb. <laughs> yeah, she's a hella weeb. I say as a weeb, she's a weeb. I'm not a weeb, yeah. but I, I understand why people would call me that. Anyway... So, yeah, um, I just like to give, uh, you know, um, a little bit of credit to who the, um, you know, voice actors are in this because they're also like a very diverse cast. Um, so we have got Steven himself. He is voiced by, um, Zach Callison, who is a young white man who was a boy when he when they first started making the show it actually sounds really weird in the first few episodes because even though he's playing a child he's trying to make his voice sound deeper so he sounds weird and husky and then his voice actually sounds higher pitched in later episodes when he stops trying to make his voice sound lower it's actually kind of adorable <laughs> um and so and then we have our three uh major are three gems okay so we've got garnet she is voiced by estelle estelle um, the singer yes estelle the singer of american boy um and so uh uh garnet just for some reason has a west london accent and that just is what it is um it's the first um voice acting project that estelle ever did and she does a great job um, then we have Amethyst, who I'm, I apologize, I said that she was voiced by a black woman. She is not. She is voiced by an Asian woman named Michaela Dietz. Um, and then Pearl, who is voiced by Dee Dee Magnol Hall, um, who is apparently mostly a singer. I was um, about to say, so that's one thing that like you notice is that whenever Garnet sings, she is clearly a professionally trained singer but more in a like a hip-hop r&b background whereas you can tell whenever pearl sings that her voice actress is trained but in a very classical style yes yes um so then but whereas the a lot of the other characters don't come across like trained singers Though actually, like, Zach Callison has a very lovely singing voice that becomes better and better as the show goes on, I will say. Um, and then there's Greg Universe, Steven's dad, who's voiced by Tom Sharpling, who uh, many of you may also recognize as Jermaine from uh, um, Adventure Time. Adventure Time is the name of that show. <laughs> um, Connie is voiced by Grace Rolick, who was. 16 years old at the time that the show began. Um, and then we have, uh, I would say, some of our other major side characters. Um, Sadie Miller is voiced by Kate Bakuchi, who does a lot of voice acting. Um, I think I first saw her on Scrubs. She plays the ukulele. She's pretty well known. Lars is voiced by uh, Matthew Moy, who is usually... Uh, he was also apparently on uh, uh, Two Broke Girls. I had no idea. What does he look like in real life? No idea. There's no picture of him. Damn. Okay. <laughs> um, um, and then uh, just, I don't know. 
Uh, I guess the only other one that shows up early in season one is Rose Quartz, and she's voiced by Susan Egan, who uh, is mostly known as a Broadway actress. She so is. There her voice has like presence. Yes, so much presence. Yes, yeah, so so much presence. Mm-hmm. All right. So the basic premise of the show is that the Crystal Gems run around protecting Beach City from from monsters. That's like that that, that at the beginning. It's also that Stephen coexisting with the town and like being a friendly little kid who tries to very clearly help others. But other than that, it's not really made out at the beginning to seem super complicated. But one thing that the show does from the very beginning is, God, how would I put it? It's storytells by seed planting, right? So it's world building by laying things in front of us that don't seem important or notable, or if they do, we're not quite sure why. And they will eventually bear fruit. So it's kind of like organic storytelling through the eyes of Steven. Things that he doesn't understand, we don't understand. He goes to places all over the world with the gems, to old temples and beautiful landscapes where clearly things have happened before. But the gems don't explain, either because Stephen never asks. He's too worried about... Like, why are we at the, like, what is this Sky Temple? No, Steven is concerned about two of these gems and their conflict the whole time and never really asks about it. So we, <laughs> we're always craving more details. And we very rarely ever fully get them in a single episode, which could be deemed frustrating by some, but which is very organic to me. Yeah, definitely. Like, for example... Um, you know, at one point they're walking through a field where you're like, oh, that's lovely. There are, there are giant strawberries. That seems kind of magical. And then you're like, wait, there are also giant weapons. Something happened here, but just nobody addresses it. And they just like walk through that field or like, you know, they're going to like this sky temple where they have to jump over these giant floating rocks. What's the deal with that? What happened there? How'd that go on? Nobody cares. (laughs) You know, um, nobody mentions it. But then actually there's a really good moment sort of after you've sort of been absorbing all of this stuff throughout season one and we're reaching the climax of season one and, um, you know, Greg sort of just finally just says straight out what nobody said straight out before, that the gems are aliens who invaded the Earth and then had a massive war in which, like, many, many people died. Um, and Stephen gets this, like, look of horror, and there's this flashing series of images of things that we've seen before that if you view them, you know, actually think about them for just a minute, you know, actually think about it, you're like, oh, God, yeah, that's a battlefield, you know? Um, by the end... The gems have been isolated for a very long time, and the end of that season sort of is, all right, the gems from their home planet are finally coming back. That's sort of like the big conflict that gets introduced at the very end and sets up the conflict for the whole show is Steven 
Rose Quartz is gone. Steven is just learning his new powers. And the gems from Homeworld are returning. So it, it, it's a lot of setup here at the beginning. And I, I don't think going over every single detail is a good use of our time because there's a ton of them. But that's sort of where we are at the beginning. What the fuck is going on? To the end. Okay, we know they're aliens. We know that Rose Quartz was very special to them. We know that Rose Quartz led a rebellion that many people, both gem and human, died and were able to resist homeworld gems. And now they're coming back after thousands of years. Yeah. So, and that's like of a pretty serious concern. <laughs> Intergalactic conflict? Slate, like enslaving slash destroying a planet because they were they were there to like literally and and i and i mean this they were raping the planet like you later see what they do to planets they visit and there are you literally you see what they do to their own planet like they are they are there like we see the kindergarten which basically they they steal the resources of a planet to make new gems. And they have, there are hints in the first season that there are worse things on the planet lying in wait for them. So the gems are bad. Like, genocidal, like, planet destroyers, basically. Yeah, and that's just, like, what we can glean from the first season. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know? <laughs> like... They, they're bad. So, so the, the crystal gems are clearly made out to be very good guys, but they're ashamed of their history. Like they, they, they never talk about it with Steven because they don't want Steven to see them as invaders. Because it was like, it was a war. It was traumatic. Like as Greg puts it, like in the end, um, Rose could only save a handful of her closest friends. So that leads you to believe, and then also based on the size of the battles, that there were many, many, many crystal gems who are not there anymore, who have died, you know? Um, and in fact, there's also a hint to my, what might have happened to some of the other ones, too, in that at a certain point, um, they say to Stephen that... These, uh, these, you know, these monsters, uh, they've, they've become corrupted. Um, Rose's greatest wish was to heal them. Um, but we don't know how. And they, so we, we, we bubble them so, so that they can rest so that they aren't in pain and they don't hurt anyone else because all of these monsters that they fight have gems. And when they, um, poof them, as they call it, when they damage their physical form badly enough that their physical form evaporates and they retreat to the gem, a thing that we see the crystal gems do, they then put the gem in a bubble so it's incapable of reforming. Yeah, so they're fighting mutated gems. Yikes. Yeah. So yeah, and we get some more information about that later, and it's... I'll leave that to, you know, when we actually get to it in the show, but yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, so... um there's so much packed into the first season and and a lot of it is like big themes include like 
the gems coming to grips with what they as a group did. Individual conflicts between individual gems are also of highlight here. In particular, Pearl and Amethyst have a very adversarial relationship. And they've known each other for thousands of years. And it's, it's a central point of conflict in the first season, so it deserves a little bit of note. Garnet is kind of like the great mollifier. She's kind of like the big sister who stands above it all. And so she she usually is very like, cut it out, you two. But doesn't really do anything to try to solve their issues. So as cool as Garnet is, she's really just as... She has, she has issues, just like the other yeah. two. It's sort of like, does Xanax work on gems? Because Pearl is in desperate need of some Xanax and treatment for codependency. And also maybe treatment for obsessive compulsive disorder. Yeah, and... All right, so Pearl and Amethyst are, like, almost diametrically opposed in their personality. Amethyst is messy, go-with-the-flow, aggressive. Um, you know, she's, she's like the punk rocker of the group. And Pearl is, like, fastidious, ballerina, graceful, um, controlled plans everything so they their personalities clash but but the conflict is deeper than that like one of the things the first season does great is making these external conflicts tied to an internal conflict that each of the characters has with themselves yes. mm -hmm. and and steven is usually the person to get that out into the open or 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 is there to try to help them deal with these problems. So in terms of a show, Rebecca Sugar has written a show that is very emotionally sophisticated. Yes, extremely. Because these characters never gloss over their issues. They may avoid them. They may show progress, but they never just let it go or just like gloss over it like, oh, okay, we're better now. No, they, they don't. There's progress, but this is a central theme of the whole show. Emotional problems don't go away after one good conversation. Yeah. They don't. And Pearl and Amethyst are a work in progress the whole series. The yeah, whole definitely. Series. Something that I noticed this I've watched this show like three or four times, and something that I like I thought about for the first time when watching this is they point out, okay, so the timeline here is the gems were on Earth 5,000 years ago, right? And gems live for many thousand, like Pearl says she was a few thousand years old at that point, right? So Pearl is, let's, let's say she means that literally, like a few means, let's say a few means three. So Pearl is 7,000 years old right at this point um well and and being 3000 years old was quite young she said so and that's when they started creating gems was 5000 years ago and they also comment in season 1 that amethyst was made on earth and she emerged late 
And there also is some indication that's never made clear throughout the entire series, but there are statements made to indicate that she might not have emerged even until after the war, spent a long time by herself before she eventually ran into the Crystal Gems. So Amethyst not only spent her formative years completely alone, but is actually less than 5,000 years old, meaning that for a gem, she's quite young. She's almost like an adolescent gem. And in fact, the way that she's animated in flashbacks to when Greg and um, Rose met, the way she's animated, her form, makes her look super young, makes her look like a young child. And the way that she dresses with the -the off-the-shoulder thing seems very adolescent. And a lot of her behavior is very adolescent with the messy room and the sneaking out and the yelling at people and the like, you know, like passive aggression and all of that. So it almost, I wonder, it's like, well, is Amethyst really an adult gem? Is part of her behavior and that level of conflict explained by her immaturity? Yeah, and her affinity for Steven supports that. Because she's basically closer in age emotionally to Steven than to the others. That's like on a gem scale, I think like I realized this for the first time. It's not just that she is, you know, a type B personality. I'm pretty sure that on a gem scale, she's an adolescent, that she's not actually an adult. I mean, I think that that's an appropriate reading and I did, I never really thought about it that way, but I, I, I can see now that that has a pretty strong merit because it would, it, it kind of explains everything. Like it's it really good. does. Like once I thought of that, I was like, oh my God, that makes everything about her make sense. Yeah. And ultimately she shares the emotional problems of a teenager too, like self-loathing and um, embarrassment about her inferiority sometimes. Her, she's still dealing sort of like with the trauma of her origin. Mm-hmm. And all of that seems like conflicts you would have as an adolescent rather, yeah. rather than as an adult. And um, Amethyst's in, like internal conflicts come to the surface most readily of everyone. So like all that stuff about like she's sort of the first one that's willing to confide in Steven about how like and who's willing to open up to Pearl about how like she hates herself, she feels inferior, she feels that she's the product of something that everyone else is ashamed of and therefore they're ashamed of her, you know, that whole thing. Whereas with Pearl and Garnet, their internal conflicts are buried much, much deeper, which I think is something that happens in adulthood, you know? Yeah, and I mean, okay, season one very clearly introduces the hint that Pearl is in love with Rose Quartz. Like, the way that she acts, the way that she talks, the way she blushes, the way that she talks about devoting herself to her is not just that of a loyal person. It is the language of a person in love. I just think all the time about when they go, when Amethyst cracks her gem and they're warping into this place where they think they might be able to heal her. And like Pearl is absolutely gushing. She's like, I'm fountains overflowing with Rose's healing lacrimal essence. It's like, that's unhealthy. 
the way you just said that is not normal. (laughs) And yeah, she and also I think more telling is the way that she reacts to the information that Rose is gone. She always seems like she's in shock or in pain in a way that the others just aren't. Yes. Or when she there's an episode in which Stephen asks to know more about his mother. And Pearl immediately says, I can take you somewhere and tell you some things that no one else knows because I was Rose's sole confidant. And then she says something very disturbing because Stephen says, why did she keep so many secrets? And she says, the mark of a good leader is to know what secrets to keep from everyone. And then she says, but she never kept any secrets from me. But it turns out she did. She kept a lot of secrets from Pearl and it completely breaks Pearl. She has a complete meltdown in which she pushes away and lashes out at Steven. And we've never seen her do that before. We've seen her scold him. You know, we've seen her discipline him in a motherly way, but never lash out at him or push him away. But the idea that, like, that Rose kept things from her, like, sends her off the deep end. Well, and and the way that she responds to Stephen is, like, classic, like, I, okay, I know that, like, I'm not a huge fan of psychoanalytics, <laughs> but... Like, it's transference. Like, she she has issues seeing Stephen as an independent entity sometimes during times of stress. She has a tendency to blur the lines between him and Rose. And will we'll sort of, like, expect him to be like her. Because she's still kind of... She still kind of isn't all in that he is different than she is. Like, mentally, I think Cog... Like, intellectually she knows that but emotionally she's still so she lashes out at steven because she's lashing out at rose yeah there's some stuff that comes up with that like hardcore in season two which we'll leave for that time but yeah this is the first time that we really see like that like you know there's a lot of strong hints that her relationship to rose was of great intensity perhaps of greater intensity than Rose's relationship with the other gems or than Pearl's relationship with the other gems. And here we finally see actual proof that it was and see the ways in which that continues to hurt her, you know? Well, and the great thing is that in that episode, her and Steven reconcile, but there's this great scene where they're riding Lion back and the look in her eyes is just like the look of a person in like battle shock. And although they have this night where she tells stories about Rose and they reach a, she obviously releases some of that energy. You can tell she's still fucked. About yeah, it. it's it's sort of like, well, it, it's it's the it's the release that comes from. At least I'm finally able to say this out loud. You know, at least Stephen is finally old enough and able to understand if I talk about this thing 
that hurts me out loud, right? Because up until now, it's like, I can't tell this little kid who I'm caring for that because he's here, he's here, his mom who I loved is dead and that that fucks me up. And sometimes when I look at him, it makes me really sad. Like, imagine if like you're a dad and your wife dies in childbirth, but the I mean, kid lives, you know, happens. it's a similar kind of, it's the, it's the same kind of situation. So it's like, you know, it's like every time you look at your kid, like you love that kid more than anything in the world, but also their mom who you loved is dead because they're alive. And also your kid looks like her, but you can't ever say that or let them know because it's a child. And it depends on you. And so eventually that child gets to become an adolescent and wants to know and has gained the, the, the sensitivity and the emotional intelligence that you can finally name some of that to them. And that must be, must be an incredible release. And I think that is what Pearl releases in that moment, that finally she can name, open up to Steven and say, you're here, but your mom is gone. And that hurts me. And sometimes looking at you hurts me because she's not here. And, and, and she's not over it. And she like, we're like, this is still going to need to be something that we, that I, that I deal with over time mm -hmm. in the show. Um, exactly. exactly. Note, some parents respond very poorly to that. And they like, uh, they, they lash abuse out their and, child. They abuse their child for that yeah. reason. And it's so mm -hmm. fucked up. But I, it's important to note that Pearl does a good job of not doing that a lot. But sometimes yeah. that that can fuck a person. That trauma fucks someone up so much that they lash out in really bad ways. Yeah, for sure. It's like that's something that's like very real and very complex and like difficult. Like, <laughs> that's the kind of like trauma that like never goes away, you know? Yeah, similar things are when somebody's partner, like, commits a heinous crime. They, like, become suspicious of their child. Like, are you going to be like your dad was kind of thing? Like, that, that, that is always a super complicated relationship between, like, parents and children and what they're... Like, if one of them died for them or the acts of the father, do they reflect on the son? Like, all this stuff. So, I, I think they deal Basically, with Basically, like... Go ahead. They, this is a good outcome, <laughs> I guess is what I mean to say. Yeah, it's basically, it's like, so in season one of this children's program, in the person of Pearl, we explore potentially the most parent-child relationship that can possibly exist. Yeah. And then, by the way, we, we, like, we then, like, up the ante on complex parent-child relationships. <laughs> Part of the from here I, on out part of the reason i'm thinking about like the bad outcome is i've been watching a lot of criminal minds yeah that's that, what that whole show's about <laughs> and that comes up like all the time so yeah for I, sure but um so that's like a central point that will come up as we continue um we learn about okay fusion fusion deserves its own Little, subsection little subsection here <laughs> gems are capable of fusing their physical forms together to create a new entity that is both somehow both of them but also new so it's it's it is a gestalt entity that is also still maintaining the individuality of the two gems inside of them it's weird 
It's very weird because Strange. usually you go halt like all in like it's just a Voltron situation where like each person controls a certain part of this new body or you go all in and it's like no like you meld and both of those people are gone and now it's like a whole thing but it's both at once which is super super weird to me yeah but also like, cool so it's like so we're first introduced to this concept with uh pearl and amethyst who we've mentioned they have a lot of interpersonal conflict because their personalities are very different and we first learn that they confuse to create opal another gem and so that's that's season one episode 13 giant woman um and but they insist that they only that they only fuse in life or death situations right in like in battle situations where they're in extreme danger right uh and then at the end of the episode steven learns that he can do that but later we learn well maybe he can do that maybe he can't because he's part human well they want him to practice doing it he ends up fusing with connie so like steven because of being part human confused with another human being i don't know and um so now we have a a non-binary creature named uh named stevani who's really cool well and and yeah, so then we also see that um, Amethyst, so Amethyst and Garnet confuse, um, Amethyst, Garnet, and Pearl confuse, and a little interesting tidbit that is hidden right in plain sight. When gems fuse, they create a singular new gem that represents their new form, but the two constituent gems are still located on their body. So. Yes. Amethyst and Pearl fuse and an opal appears on Opal's forehead, but the amethyst and the pearl individually are still on her body as well. Yeah, they, they, they appear as they appear as opals, but in the same locations on Opal's body where the pearl and amethyst respectively are on Pearl and Amethyst's bodies. So Opal Garnet, has an opal on her forehead and her chest. Yeah, Garnet is Garnet is Garnet has gems on both of her hands, and we see that from, like, episode one. Also, when she opens the temple door, two spots on the star light up, not one. So it's very, it's like, it's a big reveal at the end of season one that Garnet is a fusion between Ruby and Sapphire, Mm. and that they are muy lovers like yeah it's actually really it's there's so many like um like for example then they're trying to teach T- steven to fuse they're like fusion is hard even for us and garnet says not for me <laughs> and she gets like super super excited when steven and Cody fuse but what's interesting is that like so whenever other gems like other gems from homeworld have only seen them a couple of times like so far and they seem really fucking grossed out by garnet jasper calls her this shameless display right and so she's forced to unfuse and steven then meets ruby and sapphire and sees that they fuse into garnet that garnet is a fusion all the time and she fights jasper and sings the song stronger than you in which she specifically says i am made of love 
and it's stronger than you. So she refers to it as a relationship. She says that Jasper is single. Um, when Ruby and Sapphire see one another, they like fly into each other's arms and like nuzzle their noses. Like it couldn't be more obvious that this is a romantic relationship. Okay, here here's the deal with fusion. It is both just fusion and more than that, depending on who you're talking about in a given scenario. Like, is it an is it an allegory for? intimacy is it just literal intimacy is it is it supposed to be sex is it supposed to be a relationship that is both or neither like it's okay i i never know how to feel about it because it's all of those things and it's it's because like the the first reading i ever had was utilitarian it's just like making voltron for lack (laughs) of a better way to put it But once you introduce the way that they dance, like Amethyst and Garnet dance, like they dance. That's how they fuse. They dance and their dance is combined into one and they fuse. Garnet Mm. and Amethyst's dance is so sexual, sexy, like and by sexy, I mean, it is very sexual. They're. Garnet opens her legs and Amethyst jumps right in. Yeah, it's it's like really like the first time I ever saw it, I was like, that's a bit much. <laughs> and, and so clearly we're supposed to read it. In, yeah, because that's the thing. It's like, like sex. But yeah, like fusion's like sex, but it's not se- like because also the way that Homeworld gems react to it, like because let me bring in a little bit of stuff from a little further on so we can just get the fusion thing out of the way. But like. It appe- we learn that fusion is a thing that it does happen with homeworld gems, but you really only fuse with other gems of your same type for utilitarian purposes. And gems, as we will discuss when we learn more about them, have a highly class stratified society in which everyone is in their place. So fusion of non-like type gems is horrific to them because of the status and class implications but they also kind of react to it as though it's like you're just like having sex in front of me all the time you know yeah so i the the issue with reading it as sex all the time is when steven and connie fuse yeah because it's like they clearly have like Steven and Connie clearly love each other and have a potential for an adult romantic relationship, but like they're also children. So it's clearly not sexual, like neither they're both children young enough that they're not like particularly sexual, you know? So I, I think I, I, my only really understanding is like, it is a general concept of intimacy that can be extended to include sex with adults but also can be completely asexual too it can be just utilitarian yeah and it it almost seems like well when when gems of like type fuse there's no need to like really be concerned about like you know like people's emotional states or whatever but when gems of like different types fuse It is an act of extreme intimacy that even if, like, you are not in a romantic relationship with the other person, you have to be, like, on the same level and, like, have an understanding in order to successfully do it. So it's, like... 
I, I guess it's complexity, like why it can be read so many different ways makes sense from the basic premise. Like combining yourself literally with another person. Like, of course, it's going to be fraught with this, like, what is it? Is it mm -hmm. sexual? Well, yeah, for some people that is like human, like these conscious beings can clearly feel those things. Like gems don't feel sex, but they clearly have like intimacy like romantic intimacy so it is that but it can also be other stuff and it just depends on which two are fusing that define what it is makes yeah, sense yeah it's sort of like okay like if for if you are fusing in a non like in a non like battle or utilitarian context then fusion is the most intimate possible expression of that relationship Right. And in some context, you might think of it as being kind of like sex. But in other ways, it's not because Ruby and Sapphire, like it's yeah, like they have a romantic relationship. But being Garnet isn't necessarily sex. It's what makes them feel whole, you know. So it's yeah, it's really complicated. Which can evoke very common language that people use when having intense sex. Like you hear people talk about like dissociative experiences where they they say like i didn't know where i ended and they began that's a very yeah. common thing that people report about intense sex so yeah i feel like this all of this like it could be all these things just simply arises from the fact that this is super 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 close intimacy that can turn into all those things yeah, I also think it's interesting that like the way that Steven and Connie fuse is very like for the first time is very similar to the way that Garnet and uh, that uh, Sapphire and Ruby fuse when they re-meet each other on the ship and refuses Garnet for the first time in front of Steven. It's that they just kind of fall into one another's arms laughing and suddenly they're laughing and they're one person. And so I think that it has something interesting to say about the fact of like Stephen and Connie are children and they're children young enough that there's not really a sexual element to their relationship. But the intensity of intimacy of their relationship equals that of an adult romantic relationship. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. And yeah. And also just note like they visibly show somebody who can only be read as non-binary yeah like Sivani's super cool <laughs> like they have to like it really like Sivani is great and you know there's some fucking dumbass nerd out there that's like what are their like what are they actually like pull down your pants and it makes you want to punch people to like to death because like actually a lot of people uh a lot of people are shown to read Stevani as female um, like in like like Kevin, Kevin, Kevin clearly reads Stevani as female, and that's because they're like the inflection point. They are the perfect androgynous person. Yeah, it's sort of like when you look at Stevani, because also like part of it is that Connie is sort of like, I would say the way Connie's drawn is like early pubescence, basically, and so it's like it's this tall person with long hair and like the hint of hips and the hint of breasts so you just like can't really be sure you know 
Well, yeah, yeah, like Sadie is also into Sadie is like like blushing, you know, and that Lars and Sadie are both deeply affected by Stevani's presence. And we have no reason to, I don't think Sadie is coded as being bisexual or No, she's not. She's coded as straight. So, so I think we're meant to read that as like, if a person is perfectly androgynous, they Mm -hmm. should appeal to both. I also think that there is a degree to which it's like, there is a magnetism to Stevani's presence, you know, yeah. um, like yeah, independent sure. of physical appearance, right? Their voice is deep, but soft. Like again, like that perfect mix. Yeah. Like if I saw Stevani on the street, I would probably read Stevani as female, but generally like I've actually like heard stories like of babysitters being able to like explain non-binariness to children because they had the reference of Stevani, you know? I think, okay. So I think in general, I don't know if this is cultural, but I think when we read somebody as androgynous, there is a bias towards reading them more one than the other. And I think it's more feminine than masculine. Yeah, it's the long hair and the exposed midriff, I think. Yeah, and I don't know if I don't know if that's a cultural thing. I don't know if it's because we think of masculinity as being more exaggerated than than femininity. But for whatever reason, I think you go, oh, they're androgynous. But your brain is like, and we kind of read them more as female than male. But I, I think many people do that. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think if they, I think if they drawn Stevani with short hair and hadn't exposed the midriff, I think Stevani would be more likely to be read as male. Yeah, hair length is too coded. Hair length is very coded. Yeah. So I mean, I'm glad they used long hair because they look way better. Stevani looks awesome. Like Stevani is super cool. Um, it also increases their physical prowess just as just like it, it makes them stronger. Yeah. Stevani is like, OK, so at the time where they first fuse, we we learn in season two that uh, Connie is 12 and Steven is 13. But as Stevani, they're really more like 17, you know, but they the, have the like height and ability of an older adolescent. But they are also like physically fit. Like, yeah, <laughs> cartwheels, jumping off cliffs, swimming, running forever, just like they are physically very strong. Yes, definitely. Definitely. All of the power and energy of two children. <laughs> but OK, so the last thing I want to say about fusion, and I think it might be a good place for us to end, is they also use bad fusions as an allegory for bad relationships. Yes. So I, I kind of am a little bit ashamed we didn't give much note to Lapis, but I think maybe that would be a good one for next time. Mm-hmm. Lapis Lazuli is a gem that was imprisoned and released by Steven, and she sort of becomes the focal point for the concept of trauma in the show. Like, very clearly, like, bad. Like... I don't know. Would you say assault-based trauma? Probably. I mean, she was cracked and then placed inside a mirror and kept there for millennia. Um, And the way that she, like, describes the experience is as having had her voice stolen and her personhood 
efface, which is a similar way to which many um, assault survivors in the Western world describe that experience. So Lapis is released and eventually a she's captured by, oh my God, why am I forgetting their name? Are you looking for Peridot or Jasper? Jasper, Jasper. So she she's captured by Jasper, who is the first sort of invading force to come to Earth. And just I want to, like, give a little credit where credit's due to Jasper, um, because Jasper tends to be read as, like, very evil, but I think that's not necessarily fair. So what it is, is that Lapis returns to Homeworld, but Peridot says she needs to go to Earth and she needs an informant. And because of Lapis having recently been on Earth, she is a good informant and also she needs an escort. So that's why Jasper's there. So really, it's more Peridot's fault than Jasper's fault. Yeah. So Jasper is very aggressive and mm. they basically. In order to constrain Jasper, Lapis decides to fuse with Jasper, who who's being very coercive. Like, there's no way to code it other than, like, Jasper is coercing Lapis into something very intimate. And yes. Lapis agrees because she does it to protect Steven, who is the only person so far who has really helped her at all. And she drags their fusion to the bottom of the ocean mm-hmm. and basically victimizes herself every day to keep Jasper contained. And- yeah, it's it's interesting because as soon as they fuse and like, you know, Lapis drags them as Malachite to the bottom of the sea, Garnet says, wow, they're really bad for each other, is what she says. And... It's, yeah, it's not great. I will say, to jump ahead a little bit, when they, when she has been released from that fusion, she, and Jasper is no longer around, she confides to Steven that she misses Jasper. And she feels shame over that because she knows that it was, like, fucked up. And she's like, how fucked up is it that I, like, miss Jasper and I miss being Malachite? And then Jasper shows up and immediately says, like, for completely different, she's like, like, come be Malachite again. Didn't it feel good? You know, and it's like, that's okay. That's a toxic relationship. That's trauma bonding. That's what that is. Yeah, that I, I she she sort of becomes a focal point for all sorts of issues, realistic that are experienced by people who are traumatized. Like the way that she, I mean, her emotions are volatile despite her best efforts. She tries and never like, we'll talk more about her and explore that throughout the show. Cause she, I I argue she's one of the most difficult characters to watch because she deals with such bad shit. The whole show. She, like, I would argue that Lapis has done, uh, has made the least progress in recovery of anyone by the end of the show. But for totally, but for totally realistic reasons, 
Yeah, it's like how like how can she let in any of these people if they even if they didn't realize what they're doing? These are the people who imprisoned her as as in a way where she couldn't even be a person for millennia. How could she possibly let them in to begin the work of healing? They're the ones who victimized her. Yeah. And and yeah, so that that'll definitely I'll have things to say <laughs> as we go along. <laughs> but um Yeah. I would say that's like sort of the biggest like like I think that's the main sort of like emotional plot point stuff from season one and the you know the big idea of like homeworld gems are attempting to come back and that's a problem (laughs) you know if there was something that we missed things never stay away like things will pop up later that will give us an opportunity to review their occurrence in the earlier season yeah exactly like we didn't talk about lion really or that doesn't matter yeah, or Peridot. Like, I don't know. Peridot's really important. We'll talk about her. It's not a big deal, you know? Um, go watch. Like, you should watch the show. If you haven't, you should be watching it. It's really it's really excellent. I highly recommend it. Now, I will say, if you if you don't like for things to be gay, you know, we already said, stay away. Also, if you don't like for things to be twee and extremely emotional, I would not recommend Steven Universe. <laughs> Like, my boyfriend has a distinct dislike of Twee, and he fucking hates this show. Like, he he leaves the room if I turn it on. His loss. Um, Yeah, so it's like, but that's the thing is, it's like, I can understand. It is, it's very Twee. So if you don't care for that, it's not going to be your scene. That's all right. I think you're missing out on some really good storytelling, but it's not going to be your thing, and you should be aware. Yeah. So I, I I think that's pretty good wrap up, you know? Yeah. I think, I think we're ready to move on to season two. Yeah, I would say I think we're going we are going to make an attempt to cover the show thusly. Okay. We've just covered season one. We'll be attempting to cover seasons two and three in the next episode, followed by seasons three and five. Uh, And we think the movie will probably get its own episode and then future will get its own episode. So that's the plan for how we cover it. We'll see see how that goes. (laughs) Yeah. We'll have to play it by ear a little bit. Um, And you may be like, wow, that seems like a lot of a lot of episodes on a show that's only five seasons long. And I say, have you watched it? Yeah, it's um it's emotionally dense and it's dense on lore. Um so yeah, I think that just about wraps it up. Um and we will be returning to you next time with hopefully an episode on seasons 2 and 3. Um so until next time, I've been Paige. And I've been Chris. And this has been Animates. As always, you can find us on social media. We are at Animates on Twitter, Animates Podcast on Facebook, and Animates at gmail.com using the numeral 8 instead of the letters A and T. We also have a Patreon to which you can subscribe if you would like to support the show. It does cost money to host a podcast on SoundCloud, so we're just trying to make a little bit extra to help out with that. 
and we do provide bonus content sporadically. You can find us on Patreon also at Animates. As always, thank you so much for listening.